Exodus 13. Last week, we looked at the 10th and final plague that God uh, poured out upon Egypt, which was the death of the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn, which is something to keep in mind because that's what God had mentioned earlier, that God would require Pharaoh's firstborn. And we said that even though there was this buildup to the 10th plague through the other nine plagues, the 10th plague is given not a lot of space or detail um, because it serves as really the bridge to the Passover. And the Passover we looked at last week is where the Israelites were to take a lamb, they were to kill it, they were to roast it, they were to eat it, they were to take the blood and put it over the doorpost of their house. So when the 10th plague started and the death of the firstborn was required, the death angel would see the blood over the doorpost of the Israelites and pass over because that was a symbol that a death, a substitutionary death, had already taken place in that house. And a lamb was substituted for the firstborn. And of course, we made reference to Jesus being substituted for us. He died our death for the wages of sin is death. So Jesus took our sin, died our death in our place so that we, as the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. So he took our death and he gave us his gift of life. So we looked at that parallel there with Jesus. Well, now we're going to continue. Oh, and by the way, the, the feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread was to be feast that would be kept all throughout Israel's history as a reminder of God's powers, a reminder of God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. So that would to be a continual ceremony throughout Israel. Now we journey. Now we hit the road and we are going toward Mount Sinai, where God will meet with Moses, where he will meet with his people, where he will give them the law, where he will make covenant with them. But before we get there, we have to get to there. So we have seen where after the 10th plague, uh, Pharaoh lets the children of Israel leave. And then we pick up here in the story, if we look at our introduction on our paper, the Israelites leave Egypt for good. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened by God to give chase. So Pharaoh will eventually say, what are we doing letting the Israelites leave? Let's go after them. So he begins to chase the Israelites, which leads to disaster, their disaster for the Egyptians. The Israelites will safely cross the Red Sea, or as we said, the interpretation is a sea of reeds, but in other connotations, um, the wording there refers to the Red Sea. Uh, a key moment in their long story, which also takes us back once again to familiar stories from the beginning of the Bible, as we'll look at those. It's all capped with a song sung on the other side of the sea, which may be the oldest bit of Hebrew literature that we have in the Bible. After a sea is crossed and songs are sung, the reality of the wilderness wandering hits. Thirst and hunger, an enemy attack, and just generally a bad attitude. After three-tenths months, the formerly enslaved Israelites reach Sinai, where they will stay encamped for 11 months. 
So we start this journey as we leave Egypt, we come to the event of the crossing of the Red Sea. And this will begin in uh, chapter 13, verse 17, and take us through chapter 14. And of course, we are familiar with the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. It's one of the great picturesque moments in the Bible that's been captured not just in the church world, but it's been captured in uh, the secular world as well through, through many movies. And as, as I mentioned on Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago, uh, my family and I, we watched the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. Um, and certainly it's a great cinematic feature film. You know, you could go back to uh, the Ten Commandments. So even Hollywood is, has, has, has grabbed on to this scene of the crossing of the Red Sea. But this is how God delivered his people and finally put an end to the Egyptians. So the story of the Exodus reaches its narrative climax in this episode. According to Exodus 13, 17, and 18, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was shorter, but he led them a roundabout way in the desert toward a body of water known in Hebrew as the word, the Hebrew words, Yom Sup, and we talked about them a little bit uh, in a few lessons ago. The conventional translation means the Red Sea, even though the literal words mean the Sea of Reeds, uh, the conventional way that term has been used in other places to denote the Red Sea. So you'll read there's some you know, confusion on exactly what the meaning, exactly where it is. We do not know the exact point of the Red Sea crossing. Uh, there are speculations from a small uh, lake body of water uh, to either two major uh, divisions of the Red Sea. And we'll look at a map uh, in a moment or when we finish today with that. But anyway, God led them out of Egypt. He goes before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night to give them light. Again, God would harden Pharaoh's heart and he would pursue the Israelites to the Red Sea. He took his army. He took the officers of his army. He took 600 chosen chariots, along with, as it says, all the other chariots of Egypt. As Israel was camped by the sea and Pharaoh pursuing them, they had reached what essentially is a dead end. A angry, hostile, pursuing army on one side, and a Red Sea that a great number of people could not cross very easily at all. So it seems as they are approached a dead end, uh, to which they are fearful for their lives. And as we will see many times in the narrative continuing, they will turn on Moses and blame him. Uh, so they turn on Moses, accusing him of bringing them into the wilderness to die. It, it, Pastor uh, Joe and I, we were talking about this right before because he kind of, he asked sometimes what we're talking about. And we, I, I said, we're, we're going to talk eventually about how the Israelites, after seeing God do miraculous things, he watched, they watched him pour plagues out on Egypt. They watch him drown the army in the sea. The first thing they do is get out to the wilderness and start mumbling, complaining, and blaming Moses and say, we wish we could go back. Uh, so that just shows you how human nature is. No matter how great we see God, how great we see God as, what we see God do, uh, we still have a little bit of human nature in us that uh, 
still looks out for our own uh, selfish, selfish interest, and that's what happens here. So they accuse Moses, why did you bring us out here to the wilderness just to die? If we were in Egypt, we might have been slaves, but we would still be alive. But you've brought us out here to die. But the Lord instructs Moses to lift up his staff and to stretch his hands over the sea. And as he did, the sea parted, and it parted to the right and to the left, and Israel went through on dry ground. As when they all crossed, as Moses lifted up his staff again, the sea closed on the pursuing Egyptians, and the Egyptian army perished. And the result is the people saw the great power of the Lord, feared him, and believed in the Lord and Moses. And it's interesting that uh, that verse there to end chapter 14 is that they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Even though just a chapter or so later, they would again turn on Moses and grumble and complain and accuse him. But in this moment, hey, everything is great because they've just watched God part the sea miraculously. They walk through on dry ground and then Pharaoh's army is perished in the closing waters behind them. Thus ends the story of the Egyptians here in the book of Exodus. So after they cross the sea, this is a time of joyful celebration. After they see God do these amazing things. So what we have in chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, is the Song of Moses. It's primarily comprised of the Song of Moses. and then, uh, But in verses 19 through 21, we have the Song of Miriam, a very short uh, line there that Miriam praises God among the women for. But in verses 1 through 18 of Exodus 15, we have what is called the Song of Moses. And it's a song sung by Moses and the Israelites. Um, Hebrew linguists who study the Bible and the age of the Bible um, consider uh, this Exodus, and that should be Exodus 15, not Exodus 1. Um, I try to be more careful in my revisions, but that one got. So linguists consider Exodus 15 along with Judges 5, to be two of the oldest examples of biblical literature, looking at how it's written in the, in the you know, transcripts that we have, to be the example of the oldest written-down biblical literature, predating the time of David, going back to the 12th century. And this is referred to as the Song of Moses or the Song of the Sea. And it celebrates God's victory that He gave to the Israelites in the destruction of the Egyptians. This song is the poetic version of the story, the prose we just read in chapters 13 and 14. The central theme of the Song of Moses is how Yahweh, the Lord, cast Pharaoh and his army into the depths of the sea. The hymn in Exodus 15 declares, Yahweh is a man of war, or Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Um, and we've pointed out before that in the ancient Near East, you know, gods are seen as warriors. And when two nations battle, usually the, the nation that wins proves the stronger God. And we talked about how the ancient Israelites, you know, would have a similar mindset. So obviously we've seen through the plagues, uh, would be viewed through the ancient context as God's, as Yahweh's victory over the Egyptian gods. Now here with the crushing of the Egyptian army, Yahweh is praised 
as the greatest God. Let's read just a few um, verses, or all, of uh, the Song of Moses here. In Exodus 15.1, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord, or Yahweh, is a man of war, and Yahweh is His name. So there's, He's revealed Himself as Yahweh, the, the great I Am. And now here they're declaring Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is a warrior. This is Yahweh is his name. This is our God. This is the God who has fought on our behalf and given us the victory. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is a God like you? Or who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? So again, there's these small verses, as we talked about last week, this word monolatry that there was a belief that there were many gods, but yet there, there was only one God that was worthy of worship. So they said, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? There's no other God like you among the gods. You have proven your power. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people who you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom, dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by who you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord Yahweh will reign forever and ever. So this is the song of Moses. And just several interesting things to point out here. As we mentioned, the the central theme is how Yahweh has thrown Pharaoh's army into the depths of the sea and triumphed over them. Uh, Yahweh here is declared as a mighty warrior for his people. His name is Yahweh. So they are letting everybody know who their God is. Um, also contained in this psalm, uh, then you know, we have the verse, uh, 
You know, who, among the, who, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And then we have, interesting, toward the end of the song, the first part of the song looks back over what had just happened, and then we have a part that looks future. And the part that looks future is the mentioning here of Philistia or the Philistines, Edom, Moab, Canaan in verses 14 and 15. Those are mentioned um, as well as verse 17 where it says, God will bring his people in, plant them in your own mountain, your abode. Uh, so th- these verses beginning um, with verse number 13 actually looks forward. So remember, think covenant. What is the covenant? Well, God promised Abraham two major things. He promised him a family, that he would make a great nation, and he promised Abraham a land. Well, we saw at the beginning of Exodus that the people were multiplying and growing, the Israelites were. So God was fulfilling his promise through, through uh, making them a great nation and increasing their numbers, but they were enslaved. So they had not inherited the land of promise. Well, now God has set them free from Egypt. And now the ending of this song song is looking ahead. So as it mentions here in verse number 13, you've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Uh, then it talks about the inhabitants of Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan, and how them hearing about this you know, will cause them to fear uh, and because ultimately God is going to give the Israelites victory over them. So we're already looking ahead to even future conflicts. Um, and we're going to see that a little later on with Joshua as well. So we're looking toward the future conflicts that Israel will have. And then in verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain. Now some people think the mountain here will refer to Mount Sinai that we're getting ready to encounter um, I believe it looks forward to Mount Zion. Uh, God's abode, uh, God's, and it mentions abode twice, his abode uh, would ultimately be Mount Zion, where the, te- where the temple would be standing in Jerusalem, in the promised land. So because it says you will bring them in, plant them in your own mountain, you know, establish your sanctuary, your hands established forever, I believe this looks forward to the time when God brings them into the promised land, into Jerusalem. So you can see how just fascinating this story is as it looks as what God had done uh, in defeating the Egyptians. It looks at how powerful God is, and it looks to the future, to even future conflicts, and a future time where God will bring them into the land and fulfill His covenant promise to Abraham. Because as we've said, always keep an eye on the covenant. Always, because that's what the story is about, God fulfilling His covenant promises. So at the end of this song, we have, um, we have the um, song of Miriam as she sings with the women and they get tambourines and dancing and they're praising God. And Miriam says, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously the horse and rider He has thrown into the sea. So again, language from the Song of Moses, uh, but when Miriam, uh, the sister of Aaron and Moses, here singing and praising. Before we leave that, let me go back just for a split second as we're talking about the splitting of the Red Sea. Um, I skipped a whole paragraph here in, uh, on our paper. 
which is going to, looking at the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea, should bring back allusions from Genesis, specifically creation and the flood. I want us to get the picture. All right, there's this body of water that the Israelites are facing. Now, under the water, the waters cover the land, the dry ground. In Genesis chapter 1, in creation, we have darkness was upon the face of the deep. Interestingly, and I'm sure we covered it in Genesis, that's been so long ago, I don't remember exactly what all we said. But interestingly, in Genesis, we don't have creation out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, we will get to the Scripture's teaching about creation out of nothing. Um, But specifically, when God starts creating, the earth is a dark, watery abyss. It's the earth covered with chaotic waters, the face of the deep. And it says that God parted the waters above from the waters below. And when God parted the waters above and below, it revealed the dry land. What do we have here? We have a watery abode. We have a deep that the Israelites are facing. But instead of the waters above and the waters below being parted, we have the waters to the right and the waters to the left. And what's revealed underneath the waters? Dry land. Just like we have in the creation story. As God parts the waters and there's dry land, here God parts the waters and there's dry land. So the Israelites cross over. But then what happens in Genesis? Well, when we get to the story of the flood, and we talked about what happened is, God said the waters came up and the waters came down, covering all of the earth, bringing judgment upon the wicked people on the earth. So what you have is basically an undoing of creation. When the waters came down and the waters came up, covered the earth again, bringing judgment. And thus we have a new creation or a new beginning with Noah and his family. Well, after the waters part here in Exodus, the dry ground is seen, the Israelites walk through, what happens? The waters from one side come back, the waters from the other side come back, cover the dry land and bring judgment upon the Egyptians. It's the same picture that we see. So the creation is the parting, showing the dry ground. God's deliverance is the parting of the sea, showing the dry ground. God's judgment is bringing the waters back together, judging the world. And in Exodus, it's the waters coming back together, uh, covering the dry ground, and judging the Egyptians. So you have these pictures that you know, seem to be repeated. As we've said, we see these things over and over. You know, uh, you know, a famine going down into Egypt. We've seen those over and over. So you know, these pictures are kind of calling us back to the very beginning. And it's showing us that this, again, is a new beginning for Israel. And it's, in fact, a new beginning for the world as well as God has delivered His people and now giving them a fresh start so that He can work His plan of Redemption. So I find those allusions so fascinating as we explore them all throughout the scriptures. And it just shows you, you know, God's 
hand upon his word to show us these things over and over again. Well, after we uh, cross the Red Sea, after we have praised God for his mighty acts of power, um, now things start to go south a little bit. A little bit. Um, the first thing that we, uh, that we meet after Israel's great deliverance is a series of three episodes in the desert, uh, which the people grumble against Moses and thus test God. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a great, you know, a new beginning, or you know, maybe you start a new job, or maybe you start a new project and it's exciting, and then you, there's this moment that you're like, now I'm settled back into everyday life, you know, or you go on vacation and you come back from vacation and it's like, everything's still the same. You know, I still got to face everything. Well, this is kind of what this is. We've seen God's power. We have, you know, God doing this miraculous work. They're moving, they're on the move, and now they've come into, they've left Egypt, they've seen the Red Sea part, and now they find themselves in a desert. And I'm sure there's a moment that many of the Israelites looked around and they're like, this is literally a desert that we are in. This, there is nothing um, here. And they start to grumble. And they start to complain. They start to grumble against Moses. And thus they end up testing God. So we see three episodes here in the desert. Uh, first of all, and we're in chapter 15, 22. Uh, the first uh, episode that we see here is grumbling about no water. Well, they've been traveling three days and they haven't come across any water yet. And they come to this place called Mara, but the word Mara means bitter. So the waters of Mara are too bitter to drink. So the people grumble against Moses, and God tells Moses to take a tree and to throw it into the water, and the, water, the bitter waters became sweet. God promised if the people obeyed him, that he would put none, there should be none of these diseases on them that he did on the Egyptians. He then brings them to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. So even in the midst of their grumbling, God still proves himself faithful. But he proves himself faithful with a um, condition, if you will. So Moses takes the tree, throws in the water, the bitter waters become sweet, and God said... And he says in chapter uh, 15, verse number 26, the middle part, he basically says uh, in 26, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So we have a promise, but we also have a warning. And this is even foreshadowing, even in the language here in verse 26, when he talks about if you uh, listen to the voice of the Lord your God, uh, give ear to his commandments and statutes, that's language we're getting ready to become very familiar with um, when we come to uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because the giving of the law contained blesses, or blessings if you keep the law and curses if you break the law. So we already see that here, you know, and, and probably because, you know, Moses, you know, is writing this, these accounts down. He's probably not writing them in real time. He's probably reflecting them on back at times. So you know, we're probably using language, um, looking back on what's happened since the law was given, uh, which gives similar 
wording here. So commandments and statutes, these conditions of blessings and curses, we already start to see those things happen here. Uh, So that's number one, grumbling about water God provides. The next in chapter 16, we have grumbling about no food. Um, So the whole congregation grumbled against Moses in the wilderness. uh, And they say in chapter 16, verse number 3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses, have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So now they start to say, if we would have died in, in Egypt, at least we would have died full. <laughs> you know, at least, at least we would have died full and happy. You know, if I'm going to die, let me die happy. You know, at least we had pots of meat and bread that we could eat until we were full. And if God wanted to kill us, it would have been better for him to kill us there uh, when we were full. But instead, Moses, you've brought us out here in the desert with nothing to eat to kill us of hunger. Uh, So we see that the second episode is grumbling about no food. Uh, After this, the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron because they had no food. They remember that in Egypt they had meat pots and ate bread till they were full, but in the wilderness they have nothing. So what does God do? God again responds and provides for His people. He responds, responds by providing manna. And manna is this fine, as described here, a fine flake-like thing. Um, it's white. Uh, it was like a coriander seed. It was white. Um, it tastes like wafers made with honey. So we've all likened it in church to like a Krispy Kreme donut, you know, something fluffy and light and airy. It has a taste of honey. And um, so, but the name derives, the name manna derives from the fact that the Israelites greeted God's provision with less than enthusiastic response. Uh, Since the Hebrew word manna means, what is it? So they walked out and they're like, what is this? What is this? So they called it manna. They also wanted meat, so God gave the people quail in the evening. And every morning they were supposed to go out and gather the manna and eat for that day. We also find here, again looking ahead toward the uh, giving of the law, we find here the concept of Sabbath. God tells them to go out every day, gather the food for the day, however much you can eat. But on the sixth day, He tells them to gather double the amount of manna. Uh, for on the seventh day, they are not, there will be no manna provided for them because they were not supposed to work. They were supposed to rest on the seventh day. So on the sixth day, they were supposed to gather double so that they can observe Sabbath on the seventh day. Um, so again, establishing this idea of Sabbath. Also, um, in verse number 33 of chapter 16, a jar of manna was to be kept. It was to be put in a jar and it was to be kept throughout the generations. And ultimately, that jar of manna would be put in the Ark of the Covenant and to be kept throughout the generations. So they would keep a jar of manna. So again, they grumble, God provides. The third, they grumble again about no water. In chapter 17, um, it says that there was no, in verse number one, at the end of verse one, there was no water for the people to drink. Verse 2 of 17, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us to drink. 
Um, and Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. So now we have the people grumbling again against Moses for water. Um, and this time, God again provides for his people. Uh, this time, God instructs Moses to, to strike a rock there at Horeb, and he tells him to strike the, a rock with his staff. And as a result, the rock would gush forth with water. Um, this episode also prepares for a later time when Moses does not follow God's instructions closely to his own detriment. So God provides by bringing water from a rock. And I've put a note down here that the Apostle Paul uses this scene along with other scenes from the wilderness journey to admonish those believers in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul writes this, And all, all the people ate the same spiritual food, that's the manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So wow, does Paul give us some insight about what's going on, that Christ was journeying with the people throughout their journeys, the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And he begins to give some other instances that we haven't covered yet. Um, but it's interesting to note that Paul specifically points out this episode with the, the rock that gave them drink was a spiritual rock that gave them spiritual drink. And that we, as believers, drink the same spiritual drink from the same spiritual rock which is Christ, that provides us life and nourishment for our own spiritual lives. So Paul uses this verse, and he goes on to admonish the believers in Corinth um, to not fall into the same patterns of grumbling and unbelief that the Israelites did in this generation. Uh, Leaving the spiritual rock, and those are our three episodes that calls us a little bit of uh, insight into the attitudes of the people, which we're going to see that a lot more when we get into future books of the Pentateuch, if we ever get there. Um, we have here verses 8 through um, 16. That's a small interlude about a, um, when Amalek comes and fights with Israel at Rephidim. Um, Moses says to Joshua, now here we're introduced to Joshua. So it's interesting that Joshua comes up as a military leader, for we all know Joshua is going to play a major role uh, after the death of Moses. So there's an encounter with opposition along the way. This also anticipates future encounters that will happen as well as the future leadership, uh, or under the future leadership of Joshua. Amalek fought with Israel. And Moses, with the help of Aaron and Hur, would hold up his staff. And as long as he held up his staff, God would give the Israelites the victory. But when his arm got tired, or if he would put the staff down, Amalek would have victory over the Israelites. So they 
sat Moses on a rock, and Aaron and Hur would hold his arms up until the evening when God would give Joshua complete victory over Amalek. So we have this kind of first uh, battle scene here, which we'll see a lot more of that as we progress. When we go into chapter 18, chapter 18 sees Moses back reunited with his family. Uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, shows up on the scene, and he notices that in Moses' leadership, he is basically being the judge of all the people. And from morning to evening, Moses would sit and judge the affairs of the people, which some problems were um, probably major problems that he needed to deal with. Other problems were problems Moses did not need to be wasting his time with. So Jethro comes and gives Moses advice about delegated leadership. He says instead of one man trying to handle the affairs of all of these people, he says, break them down into groups of thousands and groups of hundreds and groups of uh, fifties and groups of tens. So break them down into smaller groups and then put leaders, put chiefs over each group and let them hear the affairs of the people. They hear the minor affairs and they judge among the minor affairs any major need that they will bring to you. Because Jethro would see that Moses is essentially wearing himself out. So this would ensure Moses' endurance and strength to continue to lead the people. This prepares for later organization of the tribes as well as many of the laws in the book of the covenant. And then as we come to the first verse in chapter 19, um, Moses leads the Israelites in the final push to Mount Sinai. Three months to the day after they left Egypt, the Israelites arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. So we've had a three-month journey, interesting journey of uh, dealing with people and grumbling, but yet God is still with His people. Uh, he's still leading His people. He's still providing for His people to bring them to this place, to bring them to Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses has already made this journey once by himself, and now he's leading the people on this journey as well. Um, on the back page, your final or your second page here, um, I just put some notes here about uh, the route that is taken uh, from Egypt to Sinai. Um, the problem is... They didn't draw good maps back in these times to tell us exactly where they went. Um, so some of these places that are mentioned here, uh, we try to make good, you know, good guesses of where they were along the way. Uh, so there are a couple of major uh, routes that you know, people believe that the Israelites could have taken. One is a northern route, which seems very unlikely because God basically said, I'm not going to take them that way. Uh, then there's a middle route and a southern uh, route. So mostly the southern route is the one that um, is most common, which brings Mount Sinai uh, down in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, down at the southern end, you see it there around number eight, uh, at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, however, and I think it's even in Galatians, I think it even says in Galatians, uh, that Sinai is in Arabia. So some people want to put Sinai in Arabia, which would be um, to the right side in this 
picture. So there's a couple of ways. The southern route and the middle route um, are mostly the ones that are looked at here. But you can read through some of that where it, we, where it talks about the locations that have been specifically mentioned through these previous chapters that we've gone through. Um, but again, the most common route is this purple one that um, kind of takes the Israelites south and across the Red Sea, kind of at the northern tip of the, um, of the left-hand side there of the sea, splitting off, and then down toward the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula and then back up. The other route kind of takes it, you cut through the middle of the wilderness and takes you over to a possible Mount Sinai, which is down in the far right-hand bottom, possible Mount Sinai over in Arabia. Uh, so again, those are two possible routes. The generally traditional one is the one uh, that's in purple that takes us down to Mount Sinai at the bottom of the Sinai Peninsula. So uh, just we'll give you a little bit of a view where Mara is, where Elam is, where the wilderness of Sin is, Rephidim, where they fought um, with Amalek. So just to give a little visual, um, in the red route that we have here, if Sinai is in Arabia, you see where they would kind of cross the, the other part of, or the other extension of the Red Sea there. You know, again, Moses didn't draw us a map and say this is exactly where we went, um, so we try to make the best estimates that uh, we have there. Uh, but as the final sentence here says, while such an identification is not impossible, uh, neither is it likely. In the final analysis, uh, a precise and certain identification of Sinai is not possible, nor is it really important to our understanding of the event. Uh, because, you know, we know the event happened. That's the most important part, not exactly uh, where it was. But um, So when you're going back thousands and thousands of years, things get a little muddy uh, in the historical and geographical details. But um, we try to do and guess the best that we can.